0: Welcome to the Tommy Lanham Podcast, where you will discover how to embrace your weird, organize your dreams, and ignite your enthusiasm. And now, here's Tommy. Ready? Here we go. Hey guys, I thank, thank you all for letting me come and share with you. I've been looking forward to this. I'm always excited when I get to present to new faces, people I've never met before, and I appreciate you letting me come and, and share with you. I'm kind of like Little Johnny. It's always that Little Johnny, isn't it? <laughs> little Johnny was at school on Friday, and the teacher got up in front of the classroom, and, and she said, All right, students, if anything interesting happens to you this weekend, I want you to come prepare to share with us on Monday. And so the weekend took place, Monday rolled around, and Johnny could not sit still. He could not wait to share what had happened with him over the weekend. And finally the teacher looked at Johnny and says, Johnny, you look pretty excited. He says, share with us what happened over the weekend. He said, me and my daddy went fishing and we both caught 75 catfish and they all weighed 75 pounds. (laughs) And the teacher said, now, John, you know that didn't really happen. He goes, absolutely, and did. He said, my daddy's a great fisherman. I'm even better than he is. We both caught 75 catfish, and they all weighed 75 pounds. And the teacher says, now John, what if I told you that on the way to school this morning I was walking down the sidewalk, minding my own business. When all of a sudden, out from behind this tree, jumped this great big old grizzly bear and he reared back on his hind legs and he was just about to devour me. When all of a sudden, this 10-pound yellow dog ran up, attacked that bear, grabbed him by the throat, slung him to the ground and killed that bear. I said, Johnny, would you believe that? I said, yes, ma'am, I would. A matter of fact, that's my dog. <laughs> so excited that I would stretch the truth, but I am excited about sharing some some principles of truth that I have learned along my journey. Several years ago, my wife and I, after we've been married about a year, decided it was time to buy a house. Looking back on it now, 16 years later, we were not ready to buy a house, but we thought we were, and so we found a house that we both agreed upon, and it was a... It was unique, to say the least. It was a house with character. But we loved it. We loved it. Um, it had two bathrooms, which was my only criteria for looking for a house. After a year of marriage, I, I just needed two bathrooms. That's what I needed. And, and this house had that. The upstairs bathroom had a shower. The downstairs bathroom had an had a iron claw cloth claw bathtub. Off a of bathtub, it was beautiful. However, I'm a shower person. I don't like to sit in the water with the dirt floating around me. Okay, I like for the water to beat the dirt off of me. However, I told you this house is kind of a unique house that character. At the time of move-in, our shower was not working. We moved in on a Saturday. Sunday morning, I was speaking at a church, so I got up early. And I was getting ready, and I was already frustrated because I knew I had to take a bath instead of a shower. This was our our first night in this house. And I started getting the bath ready, and I realized I did not have a plug for the (laughs) drain. And so I start trying to figure out, okay, what can I do? And I was happy. I don't know where it came from, That there was this piece of rubber that was laying there, but it wasn't quite big enough to cover the drain, so that didn't work. I tried using a wash rag, and it slowed it down a bit, but it still didn't work very well. I tried, in my frustration, I tried using a cup. How smart is that? They <laughs> made you said, just floating to the top, and finally, after a, kind of a combination of all these different things, I finally got it slowed down enough where I could actually have enough water to take a bath. However, by this time, I've run out of hot water, so it was cold. (laughs) It's quickly running down the drain, so I'm taking this quick bath. I'm already frustrated because I have to take a bath anyways, and it's cold, and I'm having to rush, and while I'm taking a bath, I happen to look up at the front of the tub, and I notice this cold one lever. Now, some of y'all are listening faster than I'm talking. I reached up, and I pulled up that chrome lever, and lo and behold, <laughs> the water stopped running down the drain. I mean, have you ever made a mistake quite like that? Oh, wow. I, I just have to tell you, it takes somebody who's pretty secure to be able to share a story <laughs> like that. But I tell you what, I have learned over the years that i made a lot of mistakes. I commit a lot of failures. And I have learned that you can either fail forward or you can fail backward. Okay? There's a couple of stories that have really influenced me. Max is a he's a Christian author. With his first book, he went to 15 different publishers to get that book published. And they all said No. Until finally, he went to the 16th publisher, and they agreed to publish the book on one condition, that they not come to him for a second book. Well, now Max Dicato is one of the more famous Christian authors in the world. I bet you they would like to have a second book by Max Decato, don't you? In an interview, somebody asked Max "says what was going through your mind as you were going to all these publishers and they were turning you down? Max Lucado simply said this, I just thought, hmm, I need to go to a different publisher. Isn't that a great attitude? Somebody put it this way with Max Lucado. Max Lucado had the gift of being able to not make it and not realize he didn't make it. That is a gift, isn't it? Because most of us, I mean, once we don't make it, I mean, it's that first mess up, that first failure. We're like, I can't do this. Not him. He just kept going. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, the author, you're probably familiar with this book, the author of the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. He went to 17 different publishers with that book and they all turned him down. He came home with the manuscript, he threw it down in the trash, and he said, that's it. I'm finished. And his wife was there and She's like, what happened? He began to tell her all the the rejections he had received. And after a while, she knew how much blood, sweat, and tears he had poured into this manuscript. And so she walked over to the wastebasket to pull it out. And he goes, no, I forbid you to pull that out of the trash. Pretty negative attitude for a guy who wrote the power of positive things. (laughs) So she waited for him to leave. She went over, obeying his wishes. She picked up the wastebasket. She took the wastebasket with the manuscript in it to another publisher. That publisher pulled it out, read it. He liked it. Five million copies later. One of the more popular books in our nation. The Power of Positive Thinking. We can either fail forward, or we can fail backwards. I remember on the day of my high school graduation, I was up before anybody else in my family except for my dad. My dad was an early riser. And we were kind of talking a little bit. I had to be at the high school before everybody else. And we were just kind of talking, just kind of generic talk. And all of a sudden, he looked at me, and he goes, boy, I always knew my dad was serious when he called me boy. With my mom, it's like my full name, right? Thomas Lee Lanham. (laughs) But my dad looked at me and he said, boy, I never thought I'd live to see this day. Well, that's encouraging. (laughs) But he had reason to feel that way. I was not always a good kid, and especially academically, I didn't do very well. I think it had something to do with my birth. You see, I was born at a very early age. (laughs) (laughs) However, not quite as early as most other people, because you see, I was due in 1971. I wasn't born until 1972. (laughs) Now, it's not quite as bad as it sounds. I wasn't a year late, but I was almost a full month late. I was due between Christmas and New Year's. I was actually born on January 21st. And even then, I guess technically I wasn't born because my mom had to have a C-section. I didn't want to face this cruel world. (laughs) I was perfectly comfortable where I was. I didn't want to go through that transition. But they came in and got me anyways. And at that time, C-sections were not as common as they are now. And sometimes they were rough. And when I came out, I was an ugly baby. Matter of fact, I was so ugly, if you can believe this. <laughs> there you go. I was so ugly. And my parents did not buy my baby pictures. Now, what, what does that do to a person? I'm serious. They took my picture as soon as I came out. They took my picture, and then a few days later, they brought them back. And by this time, I was all swollen because of the the procedure and everything. And by the time the pictures had come back, I was relatively normal, whatever normal means. And they looked so bad. My baby pictures were so ugly that my parents did not buy my baby pictures.
1: (laughs) So I think that's part of my problem.
0: (laughs) <laughs> you know, if I were talking to Freud, I would have to share that story with him because I think that's part of my issue. But I was not a good kid. First time I ran away from home, the first time, I was two years old. <laughs> we lived up in northern Kentucky at the time. It was a metropolitan area, and my, uh, my yard was gated, so my mom would let me play out in the yard and, and stuff, and she'd kind of keep an eye on me. Well, one day she looked out, she couldn't find me, so she walked outside to see where I was, and she noticed that I had learned something new, how to open the gate. Got a like two-year-old to do. Got a like two-year-old to do. That gate was standing wide open, and she immediately went in the house and called the police. I was several blocks away, across a set of railroad tracks, oh, wow. sitting in a bar, talking with a couple of girls. <laughs> A couple years later, this is worse. My sister, a few years older than me, and there was one thing that grabbed her attention away from me more than anything else, and that was Barbie dolls. So I come to hate her Barbie dolls, because that means she wasn't playing with me. And one day, there were several people over the house. I got one of my sister's Barbie dolls. And I found a lighter. Wow. (laughs) Some of you know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) I went into my mom and dad's bedroom where nobody could see me. I lit her hair on fire. (coughs) And I sat there and washed it for a little bit. And then I put it on my mom and dad's bed. (coughs) (laughs) Wow. Remember anything else when I was four years old, but I remember this event like it was yesterday. I threw it on my mom and dad's bed and then I walked back into the living room and sat and watched television with the other kids. Like I said, there were several people over the house that night. A lot of them were smoking, so the house was kind of had smoke in it already. That whole room was in flames. Before wow. anybody knew it, so supervision was definitely a problem. Yes, so it was a problem. In my family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife and I—we have become overprotective parents because I've been there. She was a good kid growing up. I was a bad kid growing I up. Supervision was a problem. Not you. <laughs> and academically, I never did well. I was an average student at best. I always enjoyed going to school. Matter of fact, I enjoyed the sixth grade so well I took it twice, (laughs) okay? I was not the kind of kid that wanted to skip school. I just did not do well academically, so you can understand where my dad was coming from when he said, I never thought I'd live to see this day. But not only that, and I think this surprises people. Once I graduated high school, I went on to college. I was glutton for punishment. (laughs) Even at the college level, I did, dip and did not do that well. Matter of fact, I'm one of those people that squeezed a four-year degree into six. In the six, in the six. <laughs> there you go. Squeezed it into six. Matter of fact, there was one point in my college career that my grades were so bad, they asked me not to come back. The encouragement of my mother convincing me to go to Johnson Bible College, as it was called then, and plead my case. She saw that she came around. There you go. There you go. I pled my case, and I say, by the grace of God and Johnson Bible College, I was allowed to get back into school. My grades did come up, not significant, but enough to stay in. I finished, I graduated, went on to do ministry, and that's something. That was a different fire inside of me. When I was just a little kid, now here's what I didn't share earlier. When I set that house on fire up in northern Kentucky, my mom and dad were talking about moving back down to the London Corbin area where they had both grown up. I just helped them make that decision a little quicker. <laughs> we moved back down there. We didn't go to church up there when we were in northern Kentucky, but my mom took me and my sister to church where she had grown up and it was there that when Jack Bunch would finish preaching he would come down the aisle as many churches do and he would stand at the end of the church and he would shake hands. Well this is what I would do. I would come down the aisle and I would shake Jack's hand and then I'd fight through the crowd and I'd go back to the end of the and I'd come back through. I'd shake his hand again, and then I'd fight through the crowd, and I'd come back through. And man, I was a nuisance. (laughs) I was knocking people over, and I was just just being a pain. wasn't my intention, but I just enjoyed walking through and shaking hands. And one Sunday morning, Jack Bunch took me by the shoulders. I didn't know what it was going to do to me, but he took me by the shoulders, and he said, how about you stand right here? and shake hands with everybody else as they come out. <laughs> if he had given me a million dollars, it would have more to me than that experience. And for I don't know how long, I would stand there and I would shake hands with people as they walked out. That sparked a fire in me. It wasn't long after that that I would bring home Sunday school material and I'd stand up on the hearth in front of our fireplace and I would read it pretending like I was preaching. <laughs> I did eventually go into ministry and I have now extended that beyond the church walls and I am speaking to secular organizations and, and, and stuff like that as well. Just helping people climb to their God-given potential. That's my heart's desire. Not bad for a sixth-grade funky. <laughs> eventually, I went back to college. I just don't learn my lesson. <laughs> In 2015, I went back to school to get my master's in life coaching. You're you the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this could turn out bad. It's two years in Yeah, it was it was a three-year program. I did it in a year and a half. Oh. Wow. And I graduated with high distinction because of a 4.0 GPA. Okay. Wow. Wow. Again, there you go, not bad for a sixth grade flunky. What Dad have to say about that? But I have learned some things along the way that have helped me and hopefully will help you and other people as well. Now. I I could spend another hour and a half talking about the things I learned, but I'm not going to. I know you guys are going to want to eat lunch here pretty soon. So let me just share a few things that I have learned along that journey. First and foremost, I have learned to change my attitude. You know, when I told you that I was a kid, I was an average student at best, that's all I ever saw myself as. All I ever saw of myself as an average student at best. I had to work twice as hard to make half the grade. Once that mindset changed, I began to change. I love the story of Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, as is, is, many of you may know, considered one of the great home run hitters of all time in Major League Baseball. <laughs> During one of the pennant races where the Yankees were playing to see who would go to the World Series, it was the last game of the pennant. The Yankees were down by two runs. There were two men on base. There were two outs. And it was the bottom of the ninth inning, which if you're not familiar with baseball, is the last inning of the game. <laughs> Babe Ruth had not touched the ball all day. He struck out every time up, and he was up to bat. He stood <laughs> up to bat. The pitch came down. And He missed it. Never even touched it. He got back in the batter's box. Pitcher wound up. He pitched another pitch. Missed it. Never even touched it. By this time, fans are already starting to walk out of the stadium. Babe Ruth got back in the box. Pitcher wound up. Third pitch comes down. It connects. The ball goes over the fence. Three runs score. The Yankees win the game. They go on to eventually win the World Series. Now, they had an interview with Babe Ruth after that game. And they asked him this question. Babe. What was going through your mind when you were up there in the bottom of the night, the game on the line, the World Series appearance on the line, and you had not touched the ball all day? What was going through your mind? This was Babe Ruth's response. Same thing that's always going through my mind. I was thinking about hitting a home run. Isn't that great? It didn't matter that he struck out three times already. He wasn't going up there thinking, I've struck out all day. What am I gonna do? Everybody's dependent on me. I can't do it. I can't handle the pressure. The only thing on his mind? Hitting a home run. So I want to have the attitude that Babe Ruth had. Every time I get up, no matter how many times I failed, I'm gonna hit a home run this time. I'm gonna hit a home run this time. Second thing I've learned is to stop listening to failure messages. Because we get them all our life, don't we? We live in a negative world where we're constantly fed negative information. Psychologist Shad Helmstetter says, by the time a child is 18 years old, they have heard over 148,000 times, no, or you can't do that. Once we've heard over 148,000 times, no, or you can't do that, we begin to believe it. (laughs) You know, it's funny because with little kids, we encourage them to dream, don't we? You can be anything you want to be. But around high school, we start saying, now let's be practical. <laughs> God save us for practical people. Because it's impractical people that change the world. Because they don't allow the failure messages to hold them back. And the third thing that I learned through this journey is that every time I fail, for me to ask this question. What can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? You know, as was mentioned earlier, I've got a a DVD and a book. It was a book I wrote a few years ago called Goals, Godly Objectives Assuring Lasting Significance. It's just a book. When I first got into setting and achieving goals 15 years ago or so, I was overwhelmed with the information. 25 steps to achieving your goals. Man, I can't. I was a sixth grade funky. I can't pay attention for 25 steps. Come on. And so I took all this information and I condensed it into something simple. It. A simple five-step process for achieving your goals. Now, these books, as was mentioned earlier, they're for sale back there on the table. But I'm willing to give this one away right now for anybody who wants it. Anybody want it? Are you willing to come get it? <laughs> all right, all right. What is your name? Diane. Diane. All right, let's give Diane a hand. All right, now why did Diana get that book and nobody else did? She came She got up. She got up. She took action. She got. She took action. You know, even after I embarrassed myself in that bathtub trying to hold the water in it. Once I noticed the chrome lever, then I look at that and go, pfft, a lot of good is going to do me now. No, I took action. I pulled it up. Even though I had I had struggled through my academics and, and even failed the sixth grade, then I look at it and go, well, you know, pfft, I'll never be a master's student. No. I looked at what I could learn from that and then I took I made adjustments and I moved forward. So my encouragement to you, because guess what? We all fail. We all mess up. I like what you said earlier, you know, hold your hand up here if you're perfect. None of us are perfect. We all mess up all the time. Whether it's a, a, a booklet or in our, in our life or whatever the situation may be, we all fail. But are we going to fail backwards or are we going to fail forward? when we fail. And it depends on whether we change our attitude, we stop listening to failure messages, and we ask the question, what can I learn from this? Most successful people don't even use the term failure. They, they call it a learning experience because it's an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Isn't it? And another thing I want to emphasize really quick. Realize that failure is an event. It's not a person. You may have failed. Matter of fact, you have failed. We've all failed. Failure is an event. It is not a person. Hey, several years ago, I was coming out of Roanoke, Virginia, which is um, where my mother-in-law lives. We were visiting her, and we were heading back to Kentucky, and I saw this great big billboard on the interstate. We got on the interstate. And on this billboard was this big bird with a frog in his mouth. And the only thing you could see of this frog were his legs hanging out and his arms. Now his legs were just kind of dangling. But his arms and his hands were clenched just below the lump on the neck of that big bird. And the words that they had on the top of that billboard was this, never give Uh up. Wow! That's what we need to take. It doesn't matter how rough life might get. It doesn't matter how many failures you've experienced, how many times you've messed up, how many times you feel like you've hit your head against a brick wall. I don't care if life gets so bad that all you can see is the inside of a big bird's esophagus. Never give up. Thank you for letting me come and share with you.